Hello, everyone. This is Charlie. This is to hell and back. And I was just remembering, you know, an, a something, uh, an intervention with somebody I worked with uh, a long time ago when I was a resident in psychiatry. And I was assigned to a patient in the outpatient clinic. And he and I started meeting and he was one of these guys that had been through several residents every six to 12 months. He was reassigned to yet another psychiatric resident. So he had been through years, maybe three, four, five years of seeing different people, you know, essentially training different residents to do therapy by being a patient. And um, so he, uh, after he saw me two or three times, and we had been located in the outpatient clinic, this is at the VA hospital. Um, at the end of the hall, I had the last office at the end of the hall. And he, um, he said to me at the beginning of a session, he said, I just want to tell you, it's become clear to me now that they assigned me to the worst resident, meaning me. <laughs> and I was, I didn't do DBT at that time, but this, the topic today goes beyond DBT, but it is very much part of DBT. So I said, um, I sort of recovered internally for a moment and I said, you know, I can understand it must be disappointing to be assigned to the worst resident. Uh, but I think maybe their logic was that they assigned the worst patient to the worst resident. And I don't know why I said that could have been a terrible thing to say, but actually he seemed to take it okay. I think I had the feeling, very intuition that that'd be okay to say. I said, so. And I said, so they've assigned the worst patient to the worst therapist. They wanna see what'll happen. It's probably an experiment on their part. And they also have me down at the end of the hall, right? So there's probably a logic to that. So, you know, why don't you and I prove that the best, the worst resident and the worst patient can come up with the best treatment, all right? And we, we had, a, it was, we were off to a pretty good start. Story number two. I was running an inpatient unit uh, for borderline personality disorder at New York Hospital in White Plains. And there was a, a pool table there. People would play pool sometimes. And one patient, a, a male patient got very angry once and he took a, 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 what do you call it, a pool ball. And he threw it at people at the other side of the room. Thank God he didn't hit anybody, but it could have really been harmful. Now I knew this patient by then, and I knew that he was very argumentative and I was gonna talk to him about what he had done. And I just knew that if I just challenged him, he was just gonna defend himself and we were just gonna get into a typical back and forth that didn't go anywhere. So I just started the conversation slightly differently. I said, hey, you know, when you threw that pool ball, I just wanna know, did you notice which ball you threw? And he said, what? I said, which ball? You know, like on a one through 15, I mean, which, which pool ball, did you give any thought to which ball you were throwing? And he stopped and he looked at me and he said, I know I did the wrong thing. I know I shouldn't have done it. I am really sorry. I'm glad nobody got hurt. I just got really mad and I just felt I had to do something. 
Now that was an interesting response because that's what I would hope he would do. But if I had confronted him in a different way, he would never have done that. So it was just sort of finding your way in. Situation number three just happened like three, four weeks ago when I was interviewing a client in the Department of Mental Health in Western Massachusetts, where I work and where I consult every week with difficult uh, treatment situations. This guy was on the Zoom call with me and we were talking to each other, or I should put it that I was talking to him and he would give one word, one word answers. He clearly had an angry tone. He seemed like he didn't wanna be there. And, uh, and, and so it was not a very satisfying conversation. And he was, um, um, I was trying to think of how to engage with him, how to get a conversation going. And his name was Pete, I knew that much. And I sort of stopped after a certain moment and I said, your name's Pete, right? He said, yes. And I said, I love that name. Do you know why I love that name? He says, no. He said, I love that name because that was the name of my dog when I was a kid. I mean, we had this dog, a little brown dog. It was my dog. I lived in a large family, but I felt quite isolated and lonely much of the time. And I would hang out with Pete. And Pete would go places with me, go to school with me and wait outside the school and stuff. And it was so sweet, you know. So I had this dog, Pete, that sort of helped me get through my childhood. So I love the name. So thank you for having the name Pete. And he said, you're welcome. And lo and behold, we started to have a conversation. So, you know, what we're talking about today, what, I'm, what we are talking about, what I'm talking about, is a, a very important part of DBT that I think doesn't get talked about enough. And that is irreverence, irreverent communication. It's um, uh, something that I want to uh, tell you what it is. Uh, I want to tell you why we do it. I want to tell you how we do it. I want to tell you why it's hard to do for many of us. And I want to give you tips for getting better at being irreverent because it really can break the ice. It really can change the game. It really can sort of get you out of stuck situations. But first I need to tell you, having welcomed you to the podcast, I want to make a brief announcement. Very important meeting is coming up. I want you to know about so that um, this is the 18th annual NEA BPD, National Education Alliance of Borderline Personality Disorder, NEA BPD conference at Yale in uh, Connecticut. It's gonna be a hybrid conference this year where you can either go in person or you can uh, go online. And uh, it's it, the focus of it, every year there's a focus and this is goes from 9.30 to 5.30 um, Eastern time. And the focus is going to be uh, interpersonal connections and borderline personality disorder, exploring the role of attachment and trauma. Okay. Interpersonal. So an emphasis on the interpersonal and what happens interpersonally. And it's for clinicians. If you've never been to one, they're really good. It's for clinicians. It's for um, professionals, uh, any mental health professionals. 
uh, folks with lived experience with borderline personality disorder or other psychiatric problems, family members, uh, and uh, it's on Friday, May 5th, like I said, 9.30 to 5.30. If you want to find out more, about, and, and oh, by the way, there's going to be a fabulous keynote speaker, Judith Herman, who years and years ago wrote one of my favorite books at the time called Trauma and Recovery, and has always been in the field about trauma and, uh, and, and is a perfect speaker for this topic. Um, and uh, if you want to go and find this, uh, you, you could go probably on the NEABPD website and find it, which would be borderlinepersonalitydisorder.org. Or uh, there's information online at www. Sorry about this, you're probably not writing things down, but I thought I should do my due diligence here. www.psychiatry.yale.edu forward slash BPD conference. Psychiatry.yale.edu forward slash BPD conference. So uh, I, I recommend it. Um, and, I, and I'll just add to that, that my uh, sort of um, sponsor, people who support me and helped me get started in this podcast long ago and continue to support me is NEABPD. So I wanna thank them for this. All right, back to the topic. Um, so let me talk about irreverence. And, uh, and, and I'm gonna try to give a lot of examples as I go along because even as Marsha Linehan put it, if you read her manual about irreverence, she says, you know, it's really hard to teach irreverence. It really is, there are some people who are just more natural at irreverence. It's hard to teach irreverence, uh, but so she says, uh, you need lots of examples of it in order to learn it or in order to understand what it is. So I've given you three examples so far of different irreverent moments in my own work with people. Um, they not, not within the DBT world, but you're gonna get more examples of that. So first of all, what is irreverent communication and where does it fit in the larger toolbox of DBT? Um, it is one of two styles of communication. It's called a stylistic communication strategy, kind of a complex term. It, it refers to a certain tone, timing, intensity, almost like the music that goes along with the content in DBT. And uh, there are two styles and they kind of are the opposing styles, DBT being dialectical. So the style that goes with being accepting and warm and validating and just being there with somebody when they're doing okay and you're just trying to encourage them and reinforce them is called the reciprocal style. That's not the one we're gonna talk about mostly today. But the reciprocal style is a style where the therapist is warm, um, is genuine, is responsive to what's going on in the client, uh, sometimes uses some self-disclosure. So there's some reciprocity going on. And so it's that kind of quality. And, and actually that's the baseline of where you'd like therapy to be most of the time. Makes people feel secure, makes people feel safe, makes people feel understood if it goes well. And, and, it, and it, so it's a good platform for the rest of therapy. But then there's this other style 
irreverent communication, which goes along with when you are trying to change somebody's behavior. You're pushing for change. So you adjust your communication style to be irreverent. And you're going to hear all about irreverent today, so I'm not going to stop right now and, and tell you the different features of it, because that's what this whole uh, podcast is about. But so the irreverent style goes along with trying to change behavior patterns. Marshall Linehan was a big fan of irreverence. And when she looked at sort of people she had learned therapy from or models of doing therapy, for instance, in the world of cognitive therapy, she really liked the style of Albert Ellis. Now, Albert Ellis was, could be very punchy, provocative, outrageous, confrontational, very direct, uh, you know, and, 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 and developed rational emotive therapy, which and was one of the big two, one of the two big teachers of cognitive therapy. Um, and so she liked that. And he even, if you read about Ellis, and if you didn't know much about him, he would even make up songs um, to try to make teaching points with his patients. He'd make up little songs about uh, his cognitive interventions uh, and put them to popular tunes. Um, you, some of you may know I do that in DBT. And uh, I have somewhat of an irreverent style, but actually I have models in my own mind of who's of who I really uh, have learned more how to, how to be irreverent. But back to DBT, um, DB, the style of DBT, you say what I mean by the style. So this would be, let's say you were tuning in on a therapy session that someone was doing and you couldn't hear the words, you couldn't hear, you could hear the voices, you could see the people, um, you would see the rhythm of the back and forth, the timing of the back and forth, the intensity of the conversation. You'd see where there were pauses and silences. And this whole thing, which, like I said, is like the music, it's like everything other than the specific content of the words, though the content of the words also matters here with the irreverence. But a lot of that is just that's the style. All right. And DBT, if you watch it over time, should be a balancing act where somebody's moving from this reciprocal style, which is going to be more low key and warm and responsive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're going to shift over into the irreverent style when you're trying to push people to change behavior. And especially if you're getting frustrated because change is not happening. Now, within the DBT toolbox, the larger toolbox, um, I've already sort of positioned these two styles, one in relation to change, one in relation to acceptance. But what, what are they, how, are, how does mindfulness relate to being uh, irreverent? And it does relate. You might think, well, mindfulness is the sort of the core of acceptance, as an attitude of acceptance in DBT. Just, but actually, the other thing it is, because it's actually the core skills for lots of other skills, and, and so it's very helpful to be irreverent if you could be mindful. Why is that? Because if you're mindful, you're mindful of the breathing, you're mindful of your body, you're mindful of something going on in this moment. You are bringing your attention entirely into this moment, which frees it up a little bit from the past 
and frees it up a bit from the worries and concerns and anticipations about the future. So you are just living in this bubble, in this moment with freedom and, and irreverence requires freedom. Irreverence requires freedom. You really have to be able to jump in this direction or this direction and try to do something. And, it, and it's not easy to do um, because of, for reasons I'll, I'll mention later when I talk about why it's difficult to do irreverence, especially when you're trained as a psychotherapist. So it's very related to mindfulness. You want to be mindful and that actually can sometimes just free up your mind so that whatever you do next is a little bit more spontaneous. Um, what's the relationship between uh, irreverence and dialectics in DBT? Very important relationship. They overlap with each other. Um, there are a lot of dialectical strategies that also function as irreverence. And I'm gonna emphasize the functions of irreverence in just a minute. And then I'll talk about the different forms of irreverence. But the functions of irreverence um, are a little bit like the functions of dialectics, uh, uh, extending, uh, making lemonade out of lemons, uh, eliciting wise mind, um, entering the paradox. All of these things have this quality of being a little different than normal conversation and their attempts to uh, deal with very stuck, polarized, dysfunctional situations so that you can sort of spark uh, a process that moves towards finding a synthesis between two opposing truths, things I've talked about before in this podcast. And so when you're doing these various uh, strategies that are dialectical, you also often are being irreverent. So these are not exclusive from each other. In fact, if you look at Linehan's manual and look at what are the strategies that one uses in order to be irreverent, the first ones she lists are exactly this. She said, many of the dialectical strategies are irreverent strategies as well. So I just wanted to say that. So what's the essence of irreverence? It's when you respond in a way to the current moment, to the current conversation, you're responding in a way that changes the direction of things. The nature of the conversation might be stuck uh, or going in the wrong direction. And, uh, and you want to do something that sort of mm, jumps track, jumps track to a different direction. It gets out of the current rut that you're in and, get, and, and opens up the possibility of rebalancing the relationship in a different way. Uh, and sometimes you can do that by bringing up content with somebody. You can say, hey, I think we're kind of stuck and I think we're doing this and maybe we should try that. <clears throat> but often that doesn't work by itself. You really need to change the transaction between yourself and the patient or yourself and whoever else you're talking about. Because all of the things I'm talking about, while they are useful within DBT, they're also useful in life. Okay, I, let me mention in, in grasping the essence, uh, one way to get it is you're gonna get a number of examples, but another way is there are several metaphors I think of uh, that help me get at what I mean by irreverent. First of all, Marsha Linehan often used this one. If you're teaching a child to ride a bicycle, I forget what age they are when they're riding a bike, five, six years old, sometimes younger, sometimes older, but you're teaching a child to ride a bike. So they're sitting on the bike and their hands are on the handlebars. And what are you doing as an adult? 
teaching them. You're running along or walking along, depending on the speed of the bike, and you're going with them and you're right next to them. And, and if they're going okay, if they're going in a straight line and it's safe, they're not gonna go down a hill, they have their hands on the handlebars, they're looking straight ahead, you just go along next to them and say, good job, look at you, look at you, you're, you're riding a bike, amazing, this is fabulous, you're so good at this. And so that would be the equivalent of the reciprocal style in DBT. It's sort of like when things are going along the right direction, they, and they might just be going a little slow or something, then you're in a reciprocal style and you're doing a lot of validation and reinforcement and things of their current behavior. But let's say that child all of a sudden uh, either hits a rock or just there's a little curv curvature in this, on, the, uh, on the surface and they turn sideways with the handlebars. And you can see, uh-oh, this is not going well and they're starting to go down a hill uh, or they're gonna fall down or they're sort of getting freaked out. What do you do then? You don't just keep running along and doing reciprocal style. You jump to what would be the equivalent of an irreverent style. You grab hold of the handlebars or maybe with one hand with the handlebars and one hand with the child. And you sort of, you steady things and you get them back on track. So in DBT and in therapy and in life, irreverent communications are sort of the equivalent of grabbing those handlebars or saying, come on, no, go back that way. And sometimes it's a little abrupt it's a little surprising and it's, uh, it's a little disruptive. You're sort of changing directions uh, all of a sudden. Another metaphor that I like, um, this was come up, uh, my friend Cindy, who used to teach with, with me and who you, some of you have heard about before on the podcast. Um, Cindy liked the metaphor of soup, is that with the communication styles, uh, you want, with a soup, you want to have kind of a stock that is uh, soothing, a warm, maybe creamy, whatever it is, but it's kind of like the, the nice uh, stock of a soup without the spices. And you want it to have that, that's a good part, that's an important part of a good soup. But then if that's all you have, it can be too bland. And so you need spices. And so irreverent communication is the equivalent of the spices. So if you have a therapy and it's always just steady and warm and bland, it might be less effective than if you can have also some spices in the therapy, whatever you're doing. And it doesn't have to be sudden jarring things you do once in a while. It can just be a whole style where you're actually being yourself. You're being spontaneous. Sometimes you or the patient are a little funny or you're saying something a little edgy or you're making a different suggestion than what they're used to hearing. And you're just sort of spicing up the therapy with a little bit of irreverence. Another metaphor, I think of it, it's a little bit like the uh, bicycle metaphor. It's sort of the idea that you're, you're with somebody and you both, you start to realize that you're, nothing terrible is happening at this moment, but you're gradually gliding along towards what could become a disaster. Like if you were in a river, you're going along, going along, going along, and you're doing okay. But you can see that if you keep going the same direction, you're going to end up going over that big waterfall that nobody should go over. And therefore, you better start changing directions. So sometimes an irreverent communication or irreverent style is going to be to wait, let's change course a bit because we're not going in any good direction. 
One more metaphor, two more metaphors, one more metaphor, of one that I like is earthquakes. Earthquakes come about uh, in, uh, in the Earth's surface and, be and below the Earth's surface because there's tension building between two different plates uh, on the, uh, in, in the Earth, two different tectonic plates. And as they rub up against each other, uh, the tension builds and eventually they, they, it slips between those two plates and that's an earthquake. And it releases tension and it sets the stage for things to be okay again for a while. Um, and sometimes it's helpful if there's a bunch of small earthquakes because you're actually releasing that tension without it having to be a massive earthquake. So I sort of think irreverence is where you sometimes are in therapy, you're sometimes in a relationship, it could be outside of therapy in a, just a friendship or something where you feel like things are just gradually getting a little bit tense, uh, a little frustrating, you're not going where you wanted to go. And so, uh, and, and you don't know what to do about it. And if you don't do anything about it, it just gradually builds until there might be a large, the equivalent of a large earthquake. So irreverent communications are often just, just challenging statements, bringing up things that people don't want to think about, that people don't want to hear about, and making suggestions to do things a little differently. And it leads to a little bit of conflict in a relationship, but it actually is therapeutically helpful in a therapy relationship to be doing that so that you don't get stuck and ending up with just some giant earthquake later. And the final metaphor I want to mention, because Linehan used it all the time, was she thought of DBT as the equivalent of a dance between the patient and the therapist. And so you're, you're dancing along and you're gliding across the floor with reciprocal strategies. But once in a while you turn and you do something a little more exciting, a little more challenging, a little more surprising, and, uh, and that would be irreverent communication. Now also, I just wanna say that, I wanna point out, you know, this, uh, this topic overlaps a lot with comedy with stand-up comedians and just, and regular, uh, all kinds of comedy, uh, because comedy relies on irreverence. Um, in, and it's sort of the essence of irreverence in many cases. And uh, so I was thinking about comedy. I was thinking about, uh, for most of us probably saw Seinfeld quite a number of times. And when you see Seinfeld, the, the there's, an, there's a lot of irreverence in Seinfeld. There's a lot of jokes. There's a lot of just sort of qualities of, of being irreverent. And, and, and that's what keeps people's interest. If, if it wasn't irreverent, you wouldn't keep watching it so much. So you're watching it and you see this irreverent moment every time Kramer enters the room, right into Jerry's apartment or into any room. Kramer just arrives looking funny. I mean, he just like, there he is. And he, and he's, and he often, jumps into the room and has something irreverent to say. He just immediately talks. Or, but even the way he physically moves into the room, to me, that really captures what I look for if I'm trying to be irreverent. I mean, whatever he did. So I was reading about Kramer. He worked his butt off to be able to do that. That did not just all come natural to him. Um, he worked and worked and worked on his entrances and the things he would first say and the tone of voice he would say them and his timing and the pause right after he would say something or after he entered a door and then before he said something. It was a lot of work that went into that. And it was interesting, I learned that he had a model himself in his mind. The Kramer model that we see is modeled after somebody that he knew. 
and it was somebody whose name was Kramer, whose last name was Kramer. And uh, it was actually the uh, next door neighbor of, uh, oh gosh, Larry David. Um, and, uh, and, and he was apparently a very irreverent guy who was also a doctor. And so Kramer really modeled his character after that Kramer. So I say that because I think it doesn't, we don't all have to enter into being therapists and be irreverent. That's not what we get trained for in graduate schools or therapy courses or programs or psychiatry programs. We're not trained to be irreverent. In fact, to some degree, it trains irreverence out of us. And so when you're trying to become more irreverent, it is helpful to have models in your mind that sort of guide you towards being irreverent that you can identify with, that you can sort of, and that give you a sense of freedom. Um, so try to think of who that would be for you. Uh, for me, it would be watching comedy. I'm actually going to a comedy club tonight down in Springfield, Massachusetts uh, with my sons who we went to a comedy show last week. Very irreverent, <laughs> really outrageous and very funny. And, um, and, and so, and, and another, model that I have, who I've talked about on this podcast before, is Cindy Sanderson, who believed in what she called the what the fuck strategy, is that if you're thinking of saying something or doing something when you're teaching DBT in a workshop, um, rather than getting caught in thinking, should I do it or shouldn't, she would just say, what the fuck, do it, just do it, just do it. And if it seems a little outrageous, just take a chance, jump, it'll make it more lively, it'll make it more interesting. And if you flop, then you, you'll have to get good at dealing with flops, which is what comedians have to do as well. And then my other model, and I'll give you an example of a really irreverent statement, is one of my sons who, when he was in middle school, and my son, by the way, just to make this story clear, uh, my son is definitely a white, uh, he's whiter than me in terms of his skin color. And um, he uh, was in his class, in his middle school class, they were supposed to be doing a math worksheet, sitting in a desk in rows, the way people do in school. And uh, the teacher's walking around and she sees that he's not doing his homework. He's not doing the assignment. He's just sitting there. And she comes up to him and says, Ruben, she said Ruben, cause that's his name. <laughs> she says, Ruben, what are you doing? We get to work on that, that worksheet. Ruben looks up at her, instantaneously says, um, teacher, I don't know, are you discriminating against me because I'm black? And the teacher's like, what? Uh, it was, it was a, an incredibly irreverent thing to say, just completely what she didn't expect, completely threw her off and disrupted her thinking at that moment. And then, and, and then what, what helped my son, Ruben, uh, <laughs> I think it helped him a lot. I think it's lucky he did it. Is the guy sitting next to him, who was a friend, uh, whose name was John, and John came from Puerto Rico. And, uh, and, and John said to the teacher, uh, teacher, uh, I just wanna tell you, Ruben is right, he is black. I know I'm Puerto Rican. So it was sort of like a double, irreverent communication one after the other. And it changed the teacher's behavior. It got her off his back, um, which may or may in the long run may or may not be good, but uh, I just want, and so he does things like that all the time. So I, I am lucky enough in my personal life 
to have somebody who seems to have just come out of the womb irreverent. I mean, he just says outrageous things, funny things. In fact, it sometimes gets him in a little bit of trouble. What's the point? What's the function of irreverence? I'm going to give you four functions of irreverence. One, to disrupt a counterproductive or non-productive pattern of behavior in another person. So you're working with somebody and they keep doing something or they're going down a certain road like the bicycle that's not going very well and it's hard to change it and you decide to use irreverence to um, disrupt the current trajectory, which opens the possibility of a different trajectory, right? So that's number one. I'll give you an example. I had a patient once who started with me. I didn't know her very well yet. We had had a few sessions and she would, for three sessions in a row, she came in when we came from the waiting room and stood at the door and, uh, looked at me as I sort of sat down and she stayed standing up and she said, I just want to tell you that with the way you were with me last time, which I could barely remember at that moment, I hate you. I hate what you're doing. How dare you do that with me? I think, what is this? I mean, and it was like, it felt like I, I really felt bad. I felt like, uh-oh, what am I doing? I'm missing something, which I may have been. But it felt like really over the top, like if she's upset with me. And I said, why don't you just come and talk to me about it? Tell me what happened last time. And she would try, but she wasn't very good at, at articulating it. She did it again. She did it a third time. And the third time she did it, and I thought, this isn't, what is this coming from? I said, I want you to sit down. And she sat down. I said, and I want to tell you that you're acting like a cartoon character. You're acting like somebody in a cartoon that has like going overboard with how much they hate me or how angry they are at me without being able to tell me what it's about. Why are you acting like a cartoon character? And she teared up and she said, am, do I really, am I really acting like a cartoon character? She seemed in, sort of humiliated and insulted about that. And I said, yeah, I mean, I don't want to go overboard on saying it. It's just that it seems like it's like beyond reality. I don't quite get where it's coming from. That's why I put it that way. And she said, I don't really know either. I just know that I'm really uncomfortable sometimes when I walk in here. I said, well, let's talk about that. And it, it opened up the door to being able to have a meaningful conversation. And she became quite open with me about what she was going through and how uncomfortable she was coming into therapy sessions, she had had previous therapy sessions that had not gone well with somebody else. And she also had a father who was a therapist. And this is in the background of our conversation, none of which I knew uh, at this time, but it's just sort of like, if you see a pattern happening that's very non-productive or very hard to understand, you know, this I wouldn't have had to be done that way, but I did that. So that's one function is that you're trying to get somebody unstuck from a certain direction. Number two, you just have somebody who isn't paying very much attention, you know, and the therapy is kind of drifting. And you're thinking, you know, that kind of therapy where you feel like, what are we doing here? Like, what's going on? Uh, are we making any progress? Is there any reason to keep meeting like this? Um, and so, you know, with, with one person, for instance, who wasn't in DBT with me, but he was in therapy with me and uh, had a severe mental illness. And he and I would get going. And sometimes within 20 minutes, it just felt like we have run aground here. Nothing's happening. No conversations going on that's going anywhere. 
and there'd be these repeated cycles we'd get into. And I learned that the best thing I could do at these moments, once I picked up on it, I'd say, hey, let's go get a cappuccino. And then we would walk out, he'd say, okay, great. And we'd walk out of the office and we'd walk to get a cappuccino at a local coffee shop. And um, meanwhile, he'd just start talking a blue streak and, and our conversation would pick up. We learned later with him that sometimes just if things aren't going very well or very aren't going, <laughs> aren't going at all, uh, he would just get up and walk around in the office. And that was fine with me. I encouraged it. I said, go ahead, walk around, do whatever you need to do to get your process going, to get yourself thinking and talking. And this is fine. And so he would get, just get up and start walking around. So that, that became a kind of a pattern of disrupting himself when he was getting stuck. Um, and I could advise him to do it. Um, another, a third function, if the first function is to try to disrupt a behavior pattern and change behavior in a, in a client, second pattern, second uh, function is to uh, wake somebody up when things are not going at all. Um, and that somebody's not paying much attention, that therapy's drifting. Third one is when the transaction between the therapist and the client has become sort of tedious and oppressive and suppressive and it's stagnant, it's not going well. And you wanna change not just the client's behavior, you wanna change the whole transaction. Now that example I just gave to you would be an example of that. But another example of that would be uh, when I had a teenage boy once, who kept, kept um, acting like there's really no point in talking and he didn't have anything to say and he would just sit there. And he it didn't look though like he was pleasantly sitting there. He wasn't just vacuously sitting there. He was sitting there with a lot of feeling and, and not saying very much. And, and I would say, well, can you talk to me a little bit more? No, it wouldn't go anywhere. I mean, I would have ordinary conversation with him trying to get him to, to say more but he wasn't. Um, and at a certain point I said, would you just tell me, why are you not talking? And I just changed the tone of my voice. I was a little more intense. I was a little more pushy. I was a little more challenging. And that's, that's already irreverent communication. And, 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 and he says, all right, well, I'm gonna ask you a question. I said, what's that? He says, so is the world fucked up? I said, I think so. I think, yeah, in so many ways, right? I'm sure the world is very fucked up. He said, all right, I'm gonna ask you another question. Did children fuck up the world? I said, actually, I don't think so. I, I think I can see where you're going with this. Children, of course, didn't fuck up the world, which means that adults must have fucked up the world. He said, exactly. So why should I talk to one? I said, you know, uh, and, and so we were th then stuck there. And I thought, uh-oh, this is just gonna be a little dust storm in the middle of a dead relationship and then it's not gonna go anywhere. And, 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 and so, so I said to him, look, I wanna tell you, I'm a lot older than you. And uh, you're discovering at age 15 that there's some things about the world that is pretty fucked up, uh, even absurd. I want to tell you as somebody a lot older than you, who's been through a lot more than you, that it's actually way worse than you think. 
Now, he didn't expect to hear that. He expected probably to hear the opposite. He thought I would probably argue with him and or try to help modify him or help him live with the world. But instead, I said, no, the, the world is totally, it's absurd. The older you get and you think about what is going on in the world and why are people doing what they're doing and even why am I doing what I'm doing? It's just absurd. And his response to that was, because it was really, gen it came from a genuine place in me. I wasn't making it up as a trick. He says, you really mean that? You really think it's, it's, re it's really that bad? I said, I really do. It's really, you really have to, it's hard to find your way in a world that's so absurd. Now, of course, what I was confronting him with was that I'm sitting there saying that, but I'm a doctor, I'm a therapist, I'm making a living, I'm seeing him. He probably thinks that I'm a reasonably competent person. I don't know for sure, but I think he thought that. And, and yet I'm saying the world's absurd. So in a way I'm saying to him without saying it, the world's absurd and I've found a place in it. I found a place, a way to be with an absurd world. And so that was, a, that was an irreverent way to get at that. And, 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 I, think it, and I think it helped him um, get a, a little bit unstuck at that moment. You have to realize with irreverent communications, somebody might get unstuck or rebalanced or get disrupted or off track or back on track momentarily. And, and that might be just it for the moment. But still, that is the point. Irreverence is not there in order to be the whole ballgame. It's in order to bring some spices in to rebalance the situation to help turn a corner. Right? Um, okay. Give you another example. Um, a client came in and would be very, uh, he was very angry with me from the beginning. It predated me a lot. It wasn't just because of things I did, but he would get really mad. And, and he knew that I practiced DBT and that he was referred to me for DBT. And at some point I stood up at my whiteboard, which is right next to my chair. And I wanted to write down something on the whiteboard, in fact, an acronym from DBT to go over a certain skill. And he yelled at me and he says, sit down. And he tended to be that way. He was kind of forceful and aggressive in his way of being verbally. And um, he said, sit down, do not stand there at that whiteboard. And I swear to God, if you write an acronym, I will kill you. I didn't believe he would kill me, but I thought he was pretty mad. It's very forceful, very irreverent, you might say, except he was that way so much of the time that it probably wouldn't be irreverent for him. Um, so I sat down, but I wanted to, um, and I didn't want to, and I, I was getting to know him, and I knew that if I challenged that, or if I talked about that, or if I tried to get into the cognitions behind that, or trying to change his feelings or use some skills, all of that would be for naught. Uh, I had to find a language of how to be with him that would fit for him. And so I um, came in the next session and I uh, had brought a little thing, put it next to my chair. He didn't see it at first. And, uh, and, and, uh, and at a certain point, I took it up. It, it was a little small whiteboard I had purchased at a little art supply sh shop next to my office. And it was like a one foot by one foot or one foot by two foot little whiteboard. And so I just, I took a little marker and I started to write something on the whiteboard. He said, I thought I told you that you can't write on a whiteboard with me. I said, no, no, I just wanna point out, you said 
don't stand up there and write on the whiteboard and don't do acronyms. So I'm not standing up. And this so happened to just be about the right intervention for him, which you never know with irreverent things, what's gonna go good or what's gonna go bad, just like a joke. Um, and he starts laughing. Like he, he appreciated that I was sort of challenging him in this odd way. So that, that opened up the door for him and me. Let me say some requirements for what it takes to do uh, irreverence well as a therapist. You, in order to do this kind of um, mm, irreverent stuff, you need to be centered in yourself, grounded in yourself. And what I mean by that is you really need to be genuine. You need to be who you are. If, you have a if you're a certain style as a person, you should be that style. You shouldn't turn yourself into somebody else's style. You shouldn't become Lenny Bruce or Jerry Seinfeld or Kramer or Charlie Swenson or Marshall Linhan or anyone else. You should be yourself, be really genuine, be grounded. Sometimes irreverence is nothing more than just sort of like raising your eyebrows or changing your tone of voice or saying something a little different. And compared to your usual style, it's change and that change will precipitate a change in your patient or in the pattern between the two of you. So be grounded, be centered, be genuine, uh, not phony, not someone else, not pretending and not too scripted. Uh, you could think in advance what you want to do, but once it comes up in a session, you really need to grow out of the session and grow out of who you are in the session. Second thing, you really need to be coming from a compassionate place with your patient. So even if you say really challenging, even outrageous things sometimes, and pushy things, and confrontational things, um, where it's coming from is that you care about this patient. If that's not the case, it'll go badly, I guarantee you. It just won't go well, because the person will feel like you're just being a sadistic asshole. You're just attacking, you know? And so you need to be able if you're called on this in the middle, like you you say something to somebody and um, they say, why, why did you say such a stupid thing? Or why did you say that to me? That really hurt my feelings. You want, where you want to be at that point is to be able to say something that conveys, look, I said that because I'm trying to get through to you. I said that I'm saying that because I care deeply about you. I'm saying that because I don't think you're going in a good direction. I want things to change and I'm having trouble figuring out the best way to help you change. And so that's your fallback position. And if that's your fallback position, that is your basic position. And if that's your basic position, often it will come through. Even if you're very pushy and you're very confrontational, you can afford to do it because where it's coming from is a compassionate place. If you're actually angry at your patient or you're fed up with your patient or you're not sure you wanna work with your patient, these are not good ideas. It's also not a good idea you generally to use um, irreverent communications around things that are really high risk behaviors like suicide. You just don't know how that will go. On the other hand, now and then, if you know your patient really well and you've been through suicidal episodes, yet you might be able to be irreverent in one way or another. Give you an example. I don't recommend this, but it's just the kind of thing I mean. My wife is a psychotherapist. She's a clinical psychologist. She has worked with a lot of borderline patients in the past, people with borderline personality disorder and a lot of eating disorders and, and, and difficult situations. And um, she had a patient once that she worked with for a long time who would go through suicidal episodes and they had been through these enough to, for her to really know what was coming and what it was like. And 
It was still sort of a little bit scary, but there was one day when her client comes in there and says, hey, I, I'm, I've just had it, you know, I'm gonna have to kill myself. After the session today, I'm gonna go kill myself today. So my, my wife had heard this kind of thing many times before, and she wanted to sort of change the nature of the conversation. And she said uh, something like, uh, you, you cannot kill yourself today. Why can't I kill myself today? You can't kill yourself. Did you see what socks I'm wearing today? What, are, what, what socks are you wearing today? And she shows her, she says, the so my socks that have cats and dogs on them, right? You cannot kill yourself on the day when I'm wearing these socks. And the client cracks up, starts laughing, and they start having a conversation further. So it can happen. I, I don't recommend it. Don't, don't go home and do this <laughs> with a suicidal person generally. Um, let's see. So I've kind of get, suggested what the hazards are of using um, irreverent communications. It can feel shaming. It can seem sadistic. It can be insulting. It can seem uncaring. You can seem quite selfish and just involved with your own sense of humor or your own sense of reality. And, and somebody can feel quite hurt by that. So you need to be knowing where you're coming from with these things and, and knowing that you care about your patient. And you also have to know, sorry, I have to let a dog out. I apologize. Um, what I was saying is that uh, you all also have to know that your interventions, just like jokes, might bomb, might fall on deaf ears, might make no difference at all, sort of like a joke that bombs. So you have to get good at a fallback the way you are if you were a stand-up comedian. You have to be, you have to sort of be good at handling it when things don't go well. And then you can just move on. Sometimes you just move on. Um, your style of communication is often kind of deadpan, offbeat, like it's not what's expected. I mean, that's one of the core qualities of being irreverent is that whatever is expected at the moment doesn't happen. Something different happens. And that's what makes it irreverent. You know, you're not being reverent. You're not observing social norms. You're not observing the conventions even of the relationship at this moment. You're doing something that's a little bit disruptive or different. And so you often have just kind of somebody presents a dramatic thing to you, you might respond by a kind of a, well, of course that's the case attitude or a deadpan attitude, a matter of fact attitude. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's kind of a part of uh, the style of being mismatching. If somebody comes in with high intensity, you might meet them with low intensity. Somebody comes in with low intensity, you might meet with them with high intensity. So I had a patient come in, uh, a college student. She comes in and sits down. She says, so I was raped last night. I said, oh my God, you were raped last night? Oh no, how are you? I'm okay. It's how, is it? Well, tell me about it. It was nothing. What do you mean it was nothing? You, you just said you were raped. Do you mean that you were physically raped by somebody? Of course, I was physically raped by somebody. Who were you raped by? It was a friend of mine. I'm not going to tell you who it is. 
really you think of of it was a him yeah it was a him you think of him as a friend yeah he's a good friend we've been friends for a long time he just happened to rape me and so she was sort of like it, she threw out this loaded information to me, but in a very low intensity way and sort of as if she has no affect about it. So I met it with high affect. So I was really intense about it. I said, so let's call the campus police right now. No, no, we don't think we should. But I, I kept pushing a higher intensity response and she kept pushing a lower intensity response until in fact, we kind of found our way towards the middle. So sometimes you just mismatch the with the intensity of your person because the this where they're going is not is not good sometimes you suddenly have surprisingly high intensity yourself when it wasn't part of the conversation up to that moment so for instance i was seeing a 17 year old girl and she was uh, probably by that point an alcoholic very talented very interesting person but her life had really gotten uh into a pattern of addiction where she would go out with her friends at night and they would get really drunk and sometimes they would take drugs and they would go to a concert or something in, in our town and, and she would end up sometimes passed out unconscious on the street with her friends afterwards. And they wouldn't want the parents to find out. So they would figure out where to take her and hang out until she woke up. And that would usually be one of the kids' houses where they knew their parents weren't home. And so the parents wouldn't find out. And so um, I knew enough about her and her family and from her and her parents that to actually know that for all I could tell, they were, they were really good parents. They were very concerned. They were responsible. They were serious. They were thoughtful. They had done a lot for this daughter and another daughter they had. And I didn't, I, I was not able to get it. Like what happened in this family? What happened with this girl? And she wasn't very good at talking about any of this at that point. But at, when she was telling me this, and it was not the first time it had happened that she had had something, except she came in and told me this. And I'm thinking, I've got to break through somehow. I've got to have a different kind of intervention with her. And, and, and I just, I allowed myself, because I actually was pretty upset about this and upset that she could die uh, and, and her family wouldn't know what had happened. And I'm sitting on this information and I'm trying to decide whether to let her parents know about this or not, because we had a lot of privacy in our therapy relationship. And, uh, and it, was, it was a struggle for me. And so at a certain point, I just kind of let my, I don't know, let my inner parental self go. And I said, I said, look, I just want to tell you, I don't get what you're doing. As far as I can tell, you have parents who care about you. As far as I can tell, they have done everything they know how to do, and they have, of course, not been perfect. As far as I can tell, you were on a better track a few years ago, but something has gone wrong. And here you are stuck spending your time nearly killing yourself when actually you have hopes and dreams of being a fashion photographer someday. And I don't know where you're going with that. And I sort of sounded like, a, like an upset, frightened, angry father. And I kind of really let her have it at this point, more than I'm able to do right now on this podcast uh, for, for whatever reason, it's just hard to let go. And just in that moment, it was intense. And it was suddenly I was more intense than usual. And she starts crying. And she said, I don't know what I'm doing. I said, exactly. So tell me, what do you think you're doing? When's the last time you actually cared about where you were going with your life? She said, I don't know, maybe when I was 12 or 13, it's been a long time. 
So let's talk about that. And then we did, and we started to have a better conversation. But what the, the turning point towards that better conversation was like grabbing the child's handlebars when they're going in the wrong direction. So there was an irreverent intervention just by my intensity and my tone of voice and my confrontation. Um, so there are several forms that Linehan talked about of, uh, of uh, irreverent communication. She named six forms in her manual. Why do I say forms? Because I'm distinguishing between the form and the function. The function of irreverence is what I've already been talking about. It's to change direction. It's to change a transaction. It's to get someone to wake up and pay attention. It's to get a different set of emotions going, a different set of thoughts going. This is, this is what I mean by the functions. And there, there are different functions at different times. But essentially, those are the core functions of being irreverent in, in therapy. Um, the forms are all the different ways you do it. And of course, there's way more forms than six to be irreverent, sometimes even to be just incredibly more validating than usual can really change directions. And so it's strangely enough, since validation is sort of a, 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 an acceptance strategy, uh, sometimes just to be more radically uh, validating than you were, more deeply validating than you were, will really change course, right? I remember with one patient once, uh, this isn't one of the six forms. I'll get to them in a minute. Um, I was just realizing there's so many other forms. I don't want, I just don't want you to get confined thinking you have to do one of these six things because that'll limit your freedom. You just want to change things and you can change things in a hundred different ways. So one way with this one patient where she was telling me um, how worthless she felt and how she felt of no worth to anyone in the world and no value to anyone in the world and how depressed she felt and how she wasn't going anywhere and how hopeless and all of this. At a certain point, I said to her, um, I said, I just, I just wanna let you know something about what you are to me. What? I said, I said, you know, that, that this is sort of going outside my usual boundaries of what I would share with you. So please don't be freaked out about it. But if I, if, I, if I knew you not as my patient, but as a friend, and if I went through hell, if I was going through some tragedy, and I really, really needed to talk to someone and feel that I could rely on somebody and somebody was supportive, I swear to God, you'd be one of the first people I would think of. You are so empathic. You are so tuned in to other people. And it's just very amazing. And she, and she really took that in. And she said, oh my God, you really would. That, I really, I'm so glad you told me that. I said, absolutely, you should know that. This is one of your qualities. And it's a quality that a lot of people don't have as much of as you do. So I just want you to know that. So that was a moment when we turned a corner there, not by doing something confrontational or dramatic or offbeat or anything. It was just sort of like more deeply reinforcing and validating of her capabilities and, and one of her qualities. So what are these forms? Number one, uh, I'll try to give uh, examples as I go along. One, one that Linehan emphasized a lot is to reframe in an unorthodox manner. So this is where some, some of the things I've been talking about, where a, a client says some things and they expect a certain response and you reframe it by, you respond in a different way than what they expect. 
for example, the one I told you that the client that's saying, I'm going to kill myself later today. And, and my wife says, um, you can't do that on a day when I'm wearing these dog and cat socks, which is silly and ridiculous in the midst of a suicidal threat, um, but actually worked. And some of the others that I, I, I told you about, like the, 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 the client that I said, uh, oh, Pete, your name is Pete. That was my dog and go over what my dog meant to me. That was reframing his communication in an unorthodox manner. I'll give you another reframing example. Wasn't mine, wasn't DBT per se, though it could easily have been, was something I read uh, about interventions by Jay Haley, family therapist. Um, when he was working with a couple where the woman had uh, uh, eating disorder, had bulimia, and she would uh, often uh, intentionally vomit her food. And they're working on this and nothing's changing. And, was, and so he gave them an assignment. He said, this week, I want you to go out and buy your groceries, get everything you need, and then uh, take it home. And then I want to take, take all those groceries, take them out of their containers, dump them in the toilet, and flush them down the toilet. And uh, it just totally changed the conversation. The, the husband, for instance, said, you know, that's what we're doing, aren't we? We're just like, we don't, it isn't like we have a huge budget. We don't have a lot of money. And we're taking all this money, we're spending it and you're, you're putting it right down the toilet. And it sort of changed the whole nature of the conversation and allowed him to activate his own frustration with his wife, which activated things in her that had been left aside for a while. And it led to a, a heated but important conversation and a turning point, a little bit like what I said about, it was like an earthquake. It was like a small earthquake happened by making an assignment of, to do that sort of thing. Um, reframing in an unorthodox manner. Um, like for instance, the, the, the patient that said I was the worst therapist ever. And, uh, and I said, well, you're the worst patient ever and et cetera. So that was reframing in an unorthodox manner. And another patient that, that uh, would, would, was got stuck in a pattern where she, every session, it would come back to the core complaint in her life that her parents were not generous enough to her. They were more generous to her brothers. They were more generous to themselves, but she had a lot of disabilities and she feels like they aren't honoring her disabilities and giving her what she needs to have a better life. And if, if financially in particular, and they had a lot of money. And I could understand it, I could validate it, I could try to change her thinking about it. We even had a couple of sessions with the parents about it. Um, and, it and she still would come back doing this. And I just thought, well, I'm gonna try an irreverent thing to change the conversation a little bit. And so I came in and I had prepared a poster before from the same art supply store that I had mentioned. And I had written something on the poster and I put it next to my chair. And while she's talking, she starts talking again and rather predictably about how uh, depriving her parents are and how they're not generous. And as she goes on about it at a certain point, rather than any verbal interventions out loud, I just picked up the poster and held it in front of her. And it said in the poster, they will never be generous to you. And she looked at it. You could tell she was really taking it in. I looked at it. And then after a pause, she said, never? 
And this, I, I, I predicted that she would say that or something like that. So I turned the poster around and on the other side, it said, ever. And she said, oh my God, you knew I was gonna say that. I said, I did know what you were gonna say. I mean, I didn't know exactly, but that's pretty much what you say. They will never ever be generous to you, right? And, and I'm just telling you, that's probably true. And she said, oh my God, can I take that poster home and put it on my refrigerator? I said, absolutely. You look at it all you want, because what we're dealing with here is you have not been able to change your parents. I have not been able to change your parents. We have to work on radical acceptance and you going forward in your life and not holding up your life, waiting for them to change. Okay. And so that was a helpful step in that direction. Um, another form that was all, and there's a million possibilities of this, right? Of reframing in an unorthodox manner, just the way somebody doesn't expect you to reframe or respond. Second one, plunge in where angels fear to tread. This is where you're really direct. You really don't back off from things that are hard to talk about, things that are gory, things that are disturbing. You can be there with them. You can be direct. Uh, you can be candid. Uh, you aren't treating the patient as fragile. Even if you're recognizing that there is some fragility there, you can sort of think of your, I like to think of my patient as having maybe a fragile part and a non-fragile part and be plunging in where angels fear to tread is like talking to the less fragile part, to the part that can hear it, which actually strengthens them if you do it right. You're, you sometimes act kind of naive uh, and, and as if you don't understand things, they'll say, well, of course that's happening. Like when it's a terrible thing that's happening or somebody says, you know what? I've never run before, but I want to. I want to run a marathon. That'll get me motivated. And I say, let's go for it. I don't say, well, you've never run before, or boy, that's going to take a long time, or anything. They're perfectly reasonable statements. I just jump past them and say, you can do this. Let's work on it. Let's get you going. And and it's sort of like take them for their at their word. Um, the plunging into our angels fear to tread would also be like that teenager I mentioned that said the world is so fucked up and I and I said oh, it's it's way worse than you than you, than you think. Um, there was a I'm going to give you a dramatic example that uh, again you wouldn't just ordinarily go do this. This was an unusual situation. I was often asked I'm often asked to go to hospitals and consult about difficult treatments for patients that uh, have severe behaviors such as. Uh, swallowing things that they shouldn't swallow and doing damage to their bodies that they shouldn't do. And so there was this one person I was interviewing at a hospital, a state hospital in Massachusetts. And we were sitting around in a circle, the staff and myself and, and her, she came in. And I knew something about their inpatient unit. And on her inpatient unit, there happened to be three people with severe anorexia who were actually being forced to be fed by having uh, nasogastric tubes down their noses that, that and then uh, nutrition could be inserted into their stomach through that. So they'd have these NG tubes down, they'd be sitting there in chairs along the hallway. It's a pretty severe situation. Well, this patient that I'm talking to is somebody who is swallowing things. She's swallow anything. And she's in particular those days was swallowing liquid things like, she, like in the laundry part of the unit, 
she'd go get bleach and drink a bunch of bleach, which was dangerous. And she would drink anything that was there. And um, so, and, and she seemed, as far as I could tell, to sort of be in a pattern where it was a badge of honor that she could eat or drink anything. Almost like I am the badass, I'm a, I'm a badass person here. I can eat and drink whatever I want, nobody can stop me. Kind of like, yeah. And I sensed that in interviewing her. And after I talked with her for a while, I said, you know, it seems like you just go and eat or drink anything. Like, and, and we're trying to get at the root of that. But I just want to ask you another question. What? I said, you know, I, I understand that in your, in your inpatient program, there's three people or there's always somebody who has a nasogastric tube down into their stomach, right? I mean, because they, they have to get nutrition that way. Yes. I said, well, I didn't hear anything about this. Has it ever occurred to you sort of to grab one of their tubes out of their, uh, uh, grab the end of one of their tubes and suck on it and get their stomach contents and drink it? And she looked at me like she was going to throw up. But she said, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Did you really say that? I said, uh, and I just looked at her and I said, I gotcha. And she knew exactly what I meant. And it was sort of like I turned the tables. And so it was a moment of just kind of like puncturing her usual pattern there. And then I said, you know why I did that? Was it seems like you take great pride in being the one who can do any of this stuff, like that there's a willful component here. There's something you're doing that's beyond just wanting to be able to eat and drink stuff. You're demonstrating something. I wonder if that's really what you want to be doing. And so it, it allowed us to get into that kind of conversation. The next thing I just want to say would be another one. A confrontational stance is form number three. That just means being confrontational. And I've given you several examples of being confrontational. So you're really just blunt. You're direct, you're challenging. There's nothing very fancy here. You don't need to be a comedian to do confrontation. You don't need to have some clever ideas to do confrontation. Uh, you just sort of say, what are you doing? You know, why don't you stop that? Stop that behavior right now. This is not okay anymore. You because know, sometimes we get so used to working with people with severe problems that we don't just tell them, you know, just cut it out, just cut it out. And I remember learning from Marsha Linehan, I would watch her on videotapes, seeing patients, and sometimes she would just say these things, and I would realize, my God, I'm treating a lot of people who do a lot of things that are really destructive, and I never just say, cut it out. I wasn't, I'm not being direct. And so to be confrontational and direct. So I started doing more of that. And every once in a while, that's very helpful. It doesn't mean that someone's going to suddenly cut it out, but it changes the nature of the conversation. You're, you're really saying something that makes complete sense and in a very direct way that shows that you care about the person and that you have some hopes for them. So being confrontational, being blunt, being direct, telling them to cut it out, telling them to try something different can be helpful. The next form I'll say is calling the patient's bluff. So when a patient says to you, and this is when Linehan gives her, her main examples, are things like, patient says to you, you know, I'm quitting. I'm gonna quit therapy, I'm so fed up with you. And you kind of know that that's not really what they wanna do. Then you, know, you think they're just really mad at you. And so you might say, if this keeps coming up, 
you know what, I've got a list of referrals here. Let's take a look at referrals and see who might be a good therapist for you. And more often than not, if you're, if you're correctly understanding the situation, someone will then say back to you, I'm not saying I really want another therapist. Well, then what are you saying? I'm just saying I'm really pissed off at you. I'm really angry at you. I don't like the way things are going. I said, okay, well, I hear you. Let's talk about that. And now you're off and running, having a productive conversation about how disappointed the patient is in you and how much they're suffering and how angry they are, rather than saying, I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit, I'm going to quit. Um, I, there was another one like this that came up once that I worked with a lot of years ago, where somebody kept coming in every session. It was somebody who um, is, was in a family that had a lot of resources, and he lived with his family, and, uh, and, and he was always frustrated that he wasn't able to get a job or he wasn't able to get himself to get a job. He didn't have high motivation. And, and he came in a, and, and was telling me about this yet again. It's like another session with the theme being, I'm going to become homeless. I'm going to become homeless. You wait and see, I'm going to become homeless. And it almost felt like a combination of a prediction and a threat. And once I realized this is just a pattern itself, and it's not a productive pattern, and we don't get anywhere when we go down that road. I just said to him, um, I said, you know, you've been talking about becoming homeless and predicting becoming homeless for a long time now. I suggest that we take a whole session and devote it to making a plan for you to become homeless. What do you mean make a plan to become homeless? I don't want to become homeless. I said, well, you know, I just think it's a different take. Maybe you should take control of this because it seems like this is something out of your control that somehow homelessness is going to take you over. And one day you're going to be homeless. Um, it's not what I was thinking would happen, but actually maybe we should make a plan so you kind of know where you stand in relation to homelessness. And that was that helped turn the corner on the conversation. So that'd just be another example of calling the patient's bluff. The next one, oscillating intensity. This is one that's more just kind of like sometimes you're leaning forward, you're on the edge of your chair, and you're really engaged with your client. And sometimes you're sort of sitting back a little bit and you're just moving back. And sometimes just that movement, just that movement and that level of intensity, I'm right up front and I'm talking to you now. Now I'm backing off a little bit and I'm just listening to you now. You can use that so that sometimes you feel like maybe I should shift from one of those to the other position. Maybe I should shift to really getting intense about this now. No, maybe I should shift of just sitting back and listening. And that even can go to the point of becoming more silent. And many times, and maybe it's because my original training was as a psychoanalyst, is that I'm pretty comfortable just being silent. And, and so I'll just go silent if I can't think of what next to say and it doesn't seem like I'm getting anywhere productively. And, you, and, and I'll often have a, a client, they'll then say to me, why are you not talking? And then I say, I'm not talking because I don't know what to say. Nothing I say seems to be going anywhere. Oh, and, and that even is a change in my intensity and, it's, and I go into silent mode and then it changes the nature of the transaction. Just have to realize this is dialectical thinking is that any time you change yourself, it almost requires that the other person change in one way or another. It doesn't mean they're gonna change in the direction that you're hoping for. It might change in a different direction, 
But when, because people are in relationship, if you change, they change. If they change, you change. And so you, if you have some deliberate changes that you make that are of an irreverent, challenging, confrontational or off the wall nature, then there's something's probably gonna change at there and you just might not know what it's gonna be. The last of the six forms that I was talking about are vacillating between being on the one hand omnipotent and on the other hand acting impotent. So omnipotent is like, so a client's talking to you about, well, I don't know if I should really go to that dance with that guy. And you say, well, of course you should. Well, how do you know I should? You know, I just know these kind of things. I, this is exactly the kind of thing I know. Well, how do you know that? I just know it, just believe me. I think you should do it. And you're doing that not because you know that what's right to do, you're doing that because you're just trying to push it a direction because the person is ambivalent and absolutely stuck and cannot get out of an ambivalent place. And so you just say, go do it, just do it. And, and, and yet 10 minutes later with the same patient in the same session even, they say, well, do you think I should do this or do this with my mother? I might say, I have, I have no idea. It's just not in my realm of expertise. I don't know a thing about what you should do with your mother. Yeah, but you knew I should go do such and such. Yeah, I, did. I know about that, but I don't, I don't know. How would I know about this? I've never been a daughter to a mother. And so I, I, can, I can shift from being omnipotent to impotent and then back to omnipotent. And I'm not saying you should do, should do this. It's just another of many, many, many forms where you can change the nature of the conversation. I want to get, I, I realize I'm mostly running out of amount of time I usually spend. So I want to just say a little bit towards becoming more irreverent. It's because it's not easy for most therapists to learn to do irreverence. I've learned this in years of training and supervising people. Therapists are much better. People who get, especially get trained in cognitive behavioral therapy are better at scripted, explicit plans, how to do exposure treatments, how to do cognitive therapy, how to do skills training, how to come up with good consequences that will help reinforce the right behaviors. Very, you know, these are really like technological things. These are like scientifically based things that you can implement and it's really problem solving. And if you look at the hemispheres of the brain, these are typically mostly thought to involve the attention, the kind of attention that the left hemisphere gives to the world which is the left hemisphere gives a kind of attention to the world of grasping things, of solving things, of going after things. And, and it's not very funny. <laughs> it's not very irreverent. It can be irreverent if you're really pushy. But um, the idea is that, uh, that, that this is a really important part of DBT. But the right brain appreciates the big picture more, pays attention to the world in a different way than the left brain. It's very interesting. And the right brain pays attention to the world more as a big picture, as a context, is more aware of sort of implicit understanding of things, is more uh, attuned to metaphors, is more attuned to music and, 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 and odd things. And so uh, you, 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 you want you, it, it makes it very difficult when you've been trained in a society and trained in a type of therapy for many years where you've 98% of what you've learned is very protocol-based, scripted-based, evidence-based, scientific-based things. 
So actually to do the kind of things I'm talking about today is not so easy. I mean, that might, maybe it happens late at night and when you're getting looser and you're getting more free with your thinking or you're getting funny or you're with a group of friends or you're intoxicated or whatever it is that gets you loosened up. This is the part of DBT that benefits if you can get loosened up one way or another. So you have to break through conventional thinking and break through what's expected in the next moment and do something that just is totally unexpected and different and pushy or, or just uh, not going where they thought it'd go. And one of the things that makes it hard is also the fear of making a mistake. People avoid trying to be irreverent because they're afraid they'll do it wrong. They'll make a mistake they'll hurt somebody, they'll trigger a high-risk behavior. And so you really need to practice these things, discuss these things, think about them, and learn from other people who are good at doing it. And then try it out and try out and, 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 and try to expand your realm of freedom of the kind of interventions you're making. Let me give you several tips for becoming more irreverent, the ones I've learned or heard along the way. Number one, as Linehan said to me, it helps to be irreverent if you speak before you think. As soon as you start thinking, you start getting caught in habit patterns of thinking and expectations and anticipations that make it harder to just give a, a sort of off the cuff, off the wall, or confrontational, or free, free sort of free intervention. You're, you get caught in your own thinking. So it's valuable. And you should just try it sometimes. Go into a session with patients if you're a therapist uh, and just speak before you think. Just say some things before you think. You're much more likely to say irreverent things that are attuned to the moment and they may or may not succeed, but you want to expand your realm of freedom. Next, keep arriving into the present moment, letting go of attachments to how you think things should be. Go ahead with that what's the fuck strategy and just try things out. And especially if things are not going very well, you can afford to try some different things. Break free of social correct conventions and practice, practice being a little more outrageous. And don't necessarily wait until the moment that it's needed. Go ahead, even early in a session and even when it isn't needed, to be a little looser, a little bit without essentially violating any important professional boundaries, ethical boundaries. Uh, and staying within your overall personal limits, you still a lot of room where you can sort of um, be a little looser with your, your patient and, and it creates an atmosphere where irreverence is more likely to come up. Another tip, watch comedy. Watch comedy, see what people are doing, read about comedy. Even better, go to an improv workshop. Um, go to a workshop where you're being taught how to be more improvisational. And that, because that relies on all the things I'm talking about today uh, would, be, would be absolutely appropriate in a workshop uh, on, how to, on how to do improv. Um, try the what the fuck strategy. Just try once in a while, just try. If you have a thought about saying something or doing something, you know, try it, see how it goes. Practice saying things with different tones of voice different intonations. If you, This is where you could be coping ahead as a therapist and imagining yourself in certain therapy situations or even better role-playing situations in your consultation team in DBT, where you try things in five different ways. Try to give the same intervention or deal with the same situation in five different ways. And that includes some very irreverent ways 
the more you can practice these things, the more you can work them in because it really is just kind of like another skill set. Um, okay, that that's that's it. That's it. Uh, it was a lot to cover today in one in one meeting. I wanted to cover it in one meeting, and and I would love as usual to get any feedback from any of you if you found this helpful. Um, the whole topic of irreverence is important in DBT and sometimes doesn't get discussed very much. So feel free to leave comments where you listen to these podcasts or uh, write me at uh, c.robert.swenson at gmail.com or go to my website, charlieswenson.com, and you can uh, send me a message by email through my website. So be well, everybody. Be irreverent. Try something different. Take care. Thank you for listening. Bye.